Uh, as I mentioned, it's appropriate that on this first day of spring, we're engaging in planting kind of imagery, a vineyard, a garden, fruitfulness, harvest, although it has a heavy and dark tone to it, there is a significant positive side to this message if we'll receive it. This is the story of Scripture, the whole story. It's the story of the gospel encapsulated. God is a master gardener who has planted his world. The whole story arc of Scripture runs from garden to garden. We're living between the gardens, so to speak. I think the more obvious one for anyone that knows a little bit about the, the Bible story is it begins in a garden, the Garden of Eden, God's beautiful, abundant creation. But the whole story ends in a garden too. You know that, right? A garden within a, a city. The final chapter in the whole book, Revelation 22, gives us this picture. It's a vision given to the Apostle John. The angel showed me the river of the water of life as clear as crystal, flowing down from the throne of God and of the Lamb, down the middle of the great street of the city. And on each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit, abundance, yielding fruit every month, abundance upon abundance. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations, which we've been praying already today. God created his world to flourish in, in a diverse beautiful fruitfulness. And he means for his people to tend it, to cultivate it, to produce more and more with what he's created, to till and sow, prune and train, harvest and reap for life, for joy and for abundance, to share and receive in what God has created. The Bible is full of this kind of imagery from beginning to end. It makes sense. They were largely an agrarian community drawing their, their life from the land, those images for those of us who like to plant and sow and till and get our hands dirty really resonate for us. God's people meant to cultivate and steward and to help produce even more with what he has created. But God's people are also compared to the, the plants, the trees, the vines, the life. That, that imagery comes together in Scripture as well. We looked at a couple examples last week as we considered Jesus and the cursing of the fig tree and how that stood as a, as a highlighting what he had done to the temple or what was happening to the temple. A fig tree without fruit withered. You know, one of my personal favorite analogies comes from the Psalms. In fact, how the entire book of Psalms opens up. Psalm chapter 1, verse 1. Happy are those or blessed are those who do not follow the advice of the wicked or take the path that the sinners tread or sit in the seat of scoffers, but their delight is in the law of the Lord, the way of the Lord, the truth of the Lord. And on his law, they meditate day and night, for they are like trees planted by streams of water, which yield their fruit in its season. Their leaves do not wither. In all that they do, they prosper. From this abundant imagery trove throughout Scripture. We've drawn our vision as a church, and as I mentioned before, for years using the kind of language that we would become like a, a greenhouse. A greenhouse environment is meant to be a refuge kind of place, a safe place, a nutritious place, a vibrant place, a, diver, a diverse place. When we think of personal greenhouses, maybe not the mega ones of the corporate world, but personal ones that are meant to foster new life and new growth, that we would be field ready as those plants, whether we're 
new shoots, new saplings, startups in our faith, or whether there are young ones amongst us. We use both language, new life in Christ, one way or another. And for many, for many, that we would be an environment of refuge because the weather, the world has been harsh, has stripped us, has been against us. The winter seems long, and a greenhouse can be a place of healing. A greenhouse can be a place to grow new roots deeper, to be ready for the fields that God might send us into. Because multiplication and harvest happens in the fields, not in the greenhouse. The greenhouse is meant to be a temporary place that we are nurtured and cultivated because we're sent into the fields the rest of the week. We are in that place to grow, to thrive, to bear fruit, to represent our God. So we love this language. We think we're in good company with it from scriptures and even from Jesus himself drawing from this language. Our values flow from the vision and and the mission. We articulate our mission, really, the church of God has one mission, or we could say it the opposite way. The mission of God has one church. We can say it in many different ways. We articulate it this way, that we must help all peoples find new life in Jesus and grow to bear fruit for him. We really draw that from the imagery of Scripture, but the heartbeat of God, his great commandment to love God with all that we are, to love our neighbor as ourself, and his great commission that we are sent ones, to go into the world to see the lost saved, to see the lost come to know the hope of the gospel. Our values come from that vision and that mission because what we believe determines what we value, what we value determines how we live, that we would have new shoots, deep roots, and diverse fruit, new, deep, diverse. And so we, we use that as a, as a model for all the ways that we make decisions as a leadership team, that we would see new life and new growth and diverse fruit in our midst. So Jesus uses this language, and we could say it this way. It's the title of this sermon. God wants a vineyard. Jesus tells this story encapsulating the whole story, but also specifically what he had come to do. We know very clearly he is the son in the story And God is the owner of all, the planter of the vineyard. He put a wall around it, dug a pit for a wine press, and built a watchtower. Some of those images might be the city of Jerusalem itself and the the temple within it, this watchtower. We won't press the analogy too far. He rented the vineyard to some farmers and went away on a journey. It becomes a very heavy, poignant parable against these religious leaders, and they knew it. They received it. They knew he was speaking against them because they had confronted him and challenged him, and we'll come to that in just a moment. But let's start with the positive imagery of God wanting a vineyard. This is his desire. He's the creator God who has planted a garden. That's the way he sees his world. It's not a finished, complete work. It's just the raw materials, ultimately, given then to his creation, his sons and his daughters, to tend, to be the workers, to steward, to care for, to cultivate, cultivate, to see multiply all that he has done. So we are meant to have this progression in our midst, this creative impulse, this multiplication sense. We can go back to the beginning of the whole story, Genesis chapter 1, and having heard read Jesus' parable, here are some of the parallels. 
Genesis 1.29, and then I'll jump to 2.8 and 2.15. Then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food. Now the Lord God planted a garden in the east, in Eden, and there he put the, the man that he had formed. And the Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden to work it and to take care of it. So you hear some of that parallel to the parable that Jesus told. Chapter 12, verse 2 of Mark At the harvest time, he sent the servant to his tenants to collect some of the fruit of the vineyard. Some of the fruit of the vineyard. Before the story turns tragic in both places, and it does quickly, we see that God is the good, benevolent creator of beautiful diversity, of abundant things, of fruitfulness, and he gives it to his creation to care for, to steward, to multiply, and to receive from, to draw their life from, to enjoy. Jesus specifically picks a vineyard, a certain kind of garden. And what was a vineyard for? But for grapes that produce wine. That's why it would need protection. Because wine represents in Scripture God's gift to his humanity, richness, abundance, joy, Celebration, communion, and community. When Jesus connects the cup of wine to his own blood and the new covenant with his disciples and saying, This is the blood, this is my blood, the life of the new covenant in me, he now connects wine to life itself, to forgiveness, to his mercy, and to his grace. So wine is a powerful image in Scripture, representing so much of of who God is and what he desires for his people, his community. So no coincidence or convenience that Jesus chose a vineyard as his parable to describe God's kingdom of abundance and fruitfulness and celebration and communion, and that God invited his people to work it, to care for it, to tend it, to see it multiply 30, 60, 100-fold. Certainly, God does the multiplication as we tend to the work that he's invited us to. God's kingdom is a diverse, vibrant garden. Multiplication is latent within his creation. As I said, I don't want to press the analogy too far. I think we can do that easily, but it's fun to do in this case. Thinking of a vineyard, I don't know how many vintners we have, maybe home vintners or those that have uh, toured some massive vineyards, maybe in Sonoma Valley or Eastern Washington or the Columbia Valley. But you'll notice that the vineyards are supported, the the vines are supported by the trellis. The trellis is meant to lift up the vine, get and bear the weight of the abundant fruit and keep that fruit off of the ground from rot and insects to protect it. And there's many other things they do to protect the fruit, of course. But the most important thing in The vineyard is not the trellis, and it's not the fruit. That's the end result. It's the vine. Without a healthy, vibrant, supported, strong vine, there will be no abundant fruit. And it seems that, to press this analogy a little bit, that we can be very interested in the things that we build, the things that we construct, the structures or the systems that maybe started with good intention and have good purpose, 
but then we hold on to. And to, for, for a vintner to never tear down the trellis and rebuild means death for the vine, ultimately. Because the vine is ever growing and adapting and changing and needs new support and new structures. And I think this parallel is very clear in the testimonies and the parables that Jesus is teaching against the religious institutions that have been built. From original good intention to support the work of the vine, the true life of God's kingdom had become rigid, thus choking off the fruitfulness. And I think we can do the same thing, becoming far more concerned with structures and systems than the vine and the life and the fruit that they are meant to support, the people that they are meant to support. And maybe that was just a convicting message for me this week, but if for you also, then I welcome you to it. There are many ways beyond this that we can tragically abuse and ignore God's kingdom desires. So returning to this garden from Eden, from Genesis 1, and the vineyard, as we see both stories take a tragic turn rather quickly. I won't preach Genesis 1 through 3. I think some of us are familiar with that story. But to summarize, God's people there, which represent all people who had been given an abundance of all things, not just an abundance for life and joy and eternity and presence with God, but work to do, which gave them purpose. It wasn't enough for them. They questioned the owner. They decided to take for themselves and determine for themselves what was right and true. God had given them everything and said, except for this one tree, this small thing, that's mine only. Don't eat from it. But that wasn't enough for them. They wanted more. So they took that for themselves. And we see the parallel here of these evil, wicked rulers, uh, workers in the garden, in the vineyard, who had been given, entrusted by the owner, this beautiful vineyard to care for and steward. And that owner who owned it all and could have demanded it all said, it's yours. Cultivate, steward, take your life from it. Enjoy it, share it. Make your living from it. It's mine to you. He's a generous, benevolent owner. All he asked was for some. When the time came for harvest, he sent his servants for some, to, to share in some of the produce. A percentage? Maybe just 10%? <laughs> and so we see some of the parallels that God has given us in abundance. He's given us so much because he's a benevolent, good God. He just wants to share in life with us. This owner is pictured as not needing it at all, not taking his income from it, but living generously and just wanting to share in the abundant harvest, to have communion with his people. And for these workers, that wasn't enough. They didn't want to be infringed on. They wanted to rule, ultimately. They wanted to take for themselves. So when they had opportunity to do harm to the owner, they took it. They arrogantly postured themselves as owning something that was meant for only them to steward. We know clearly by hearing this story, these workers are beyond undeserving to work under this good master, this good owner, let alone to draw their life in abundance from his generosity. Before moving on in this story, we rewind a little bit to consider the encounter that Jesus had with these, owner, these workers who Jesus is talking about. There are three, three groups of people, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders. 
Collectively, they would have made up the, what was called the Sanhedrin, a group of 70 or 71 men who were the ruling council uh, of the Jews in that day. They were the high court. They would judge all matters between the Jews. They would, they would rule and determine what happened in the temple, how it was uh, orchestrated, constructed, how the ministry went on. And they had inherited, the chief priests had inherited this line from Aaron all the way through. They had all authority when it came to God's people, or they believed they did. So here's this upstart rabbi who comes in and is rearranging the furniture, literally, and condemning the work of the temple, shutting it down. Who is he? Who is this man? Now, they've been aware of him for a while, to be sure, but they are clearly offended by him. How dare he come in? And so they challenge him. Who gave you this authority? Where do you have, where do you, really, where do you get off? Who do you think you are? They'd already made their determination. They were asking him, wondering, well, where did you gain such authority so that we might understand more? They'd already made their judgment. Because we didn't give you this authority. We have all authority, and we didn't give it to you. Where did it come from? And as Jesus often does without directly answering a question, because he knew the judgment had already been made, he turns the tables. Oh, we can play, I too can play this game. You ask me a question, I'll ask you a trapping question. Because he knew their hearts were already deeply concerned about their position and their place. They were fearful of the people. He knew he wasn't yielding to them. I don't even know if they were giving him space to repent. Maybe this rabbi would repent and come into our care. But regardless, Jesus not so subtly passes his judgment upon them. So he asks them the question about John's baptism. Knowing they don't believe that John's baptism was a divine gift preparing the way of the Lord, but knowing also their fear of the people that they wouldn't answer that directly. So they consult with one another. They go back and forth. Well, we can't say this. We can't say that. And so they say the incredibly ironic statement, we don't know. The ones that are to know all, that have the answers for all, that make right judgment for all, we don't know. Well, truly, you don't know. You, they seal their fate, ultimately, representing their, their, their deaf ears and their hard hearts and their blind eyes. And so Jesus says, well, neither will I tell you. One commentator I read said this, it's ironic here that for those with faith as small as a mustard seed, what does Jesus say to them? Truly, I tell you. For those with hard hearts and resistant hearts, he says, neither will I tell you. And the irony runs deeper because Jesus has already told them all things. He's already revealed, them, revealed to anyone that would listen or have soft hearts to hear who he was, where his authority had come from, and what he had come to do. It's been on plain display now for years. Even the disciples are struggling to grasp it. It's the upside-down kingdom after all. But truly, Jesus is not concealing anything for those that are willing to see. Okay, back to the vineyard. Now this, this parable stands as a living example for his condemnation, his judgment against these rulers. And they got it. They saw it. And it incensed them but they were so fearful of the crowds and what the crowds would do to uproar violence that they withdrew looking for a better, more opportune time to arrest and to put Jesus to, to death. And they would within the week. The servants that the master repeatedly sends in the story, I think, are, are very clearly the prophets that God sent throughout the ages. Jeremiah seven twenty five. 
From the day that your ancestors came out of the land of Egypt until this day, the Lord declares, I have persistently sent all my servants, the prophets, to you, day after day. Yet you have not listened or paid attention, but you have stiffened your neck. Jesus would say something similar, quoting collectively from the prophetic writings. In Luke 13, 34, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, There's the indictment, just what he says in this parable. But here, the heart of Jesus. How often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. Well, there's forceful language to Jesus' prophetic word. Thus, these leaders prophetically sealing their own fate. All will be taken from you. The owner will come and destroy you. He'll take your life. That's a heavy judgment, but look in parallel to the heart that Jesus expresses as he prays in this very same moment, this very same week, as he prays for those who know not what they do, that they would come to repentance, that he would be able to gather them in. We have to hold both of those together, God's perfect justice with his love and compassion. So the story has already taken a tragic turn. The servants are, are beating and killing the servants of the master who's, who are coming to collect the harvest. Now the story takes an absurd one. And anyone with a, a heart of justice or compassion or righteousness cries out inwardly, no, the owner foolishly seems to say, I have one left, my son. I will send my son. They will listen to my son. They will honor him and respect him. And we cry out, no, they won't. We know what is going to happen. Don't send your son. Come yourself and wipe them out. Bring judgment and justice now. Don't sacrifice your son. Nonetheless, he sends them. And sends him, and by the rest of the story, we know Jesus comes willingly. We know behind the scenes of this parable, the father is sharing with his son what is happening, and the son says, I'll go. He comes to represent his father for an invitation at repentance, for an invitation at hope. And we know what happens. Just what Jesus said would happen. Yet nonetheless, he comes. The gospel is foolishness. It is absurd to hear at first. This is what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 1.18. The message about the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. The depth of God's love, the breadth of his generosity, his relentless pursuit is astonishing. The parable turns from historic to prophetic, right? There was, if there was any confusion up to this point by the Sanhedrin, they now knew he was speaking of them, that they will take, they will try to take and seize all for themselves as they've been judged by the son and by the owner. Then Jesus quotes, he kind of shifts 
metaphors here, so if you ever hear a preacher mix metaphors, we're in really good company. And he quotes from Psalm 118. Haven't you read this scripture? The stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. The Lord has done this. It's marvelous in our eyes. That only makes sense in the broader context of how we've seen the story because he's just encountered the actual temple, compared it to the fig tree which he cursed, which withered because the life source has been cut off. God's presence is removed. This temple will be destroyed. He said it elsewhere. All of these stones, as massive and beautiful as they are, Herod had built this temple, will be, will, will, will be torn down. Not a stone will be left because there's a new temple, a new presence dwelling, and he called himself the temple. And then we, the church, are meant to be the temple, the very dwelling place of God. Paul brings these images together in Ephesians chapter 2. We read a significant section of Ephesians 2 last week. Here we go, continuing that part of the passage, Ephesians 2, 19. So then you, church, so receive this, you, church, are no longer strangers and aliens, but citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. In him, the whole structure is joined together and grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are built together spiritually into the dwelling place of God. Where does this leave us today? Where's the entry point? Say, so what entry point? Isn't this just an ancient story, an ancient parable directed against the Sanhedrin, those evil, corrupt religious leaders who are blind and deaf and hard-hearted, stiff-necked, we would not respond that way. I think there's three ways to enter into the story because we're meant to. We're meant to find God's word living and active. First way, the master's servants, the owner's servants. For those that have said yes to his kingdom, to walk with him, to dwell with him, to commune with him, we are called ambassadors of a king, humbling, amazing, representatives to proclaim the good news to all peoples, to make him known in life and deed. So when he sends us into places to harvest, to reap, to gather on his behalf, we go. We don't want to enter the story like this, do we? We know what happens for those that come and declare the will of the king boldly, hopefully humbly with compassion, but boldly nonetheless. Generally, we are all called as sent ones, everyone. When Jesus says to his disciples, go, make disciples of all nations, we cannot say, well, that was just them. That was just those first 12. Because he says, teach them to obey everything I've commanded you, and there's no asterisk that says, except for this command, that's just for you. But everything else... No, we're all meant to be sent ones going across the street each day, going into our neighborhoods, our workplaces, the places we learn, the places we play, to be his agents. Now, not all will be sent into the harsh places in this kind of way with this kind of persecution. But do we pray with humble hearts, Lord, I'm willing? Do we pray along with Isaiah, the prophet, knowing the life of hardship that he would face, that most prophets faced, but declare nonetheless, here I am, Lord. I am willing, send me. That's way number one to enter the story. Way number two, would we be humble enough to consider 
where the religious, hard, pharisaical heart still lives within each one of us. That even without intention, sometimes, we live in a way that restricts other people's access to the living God. We become comfortable. We build our systems. We build our structures. Maybe we don't have some high position of power, but it's much easier to just continue to remain to do the same things than to consider new ways of seeing God's kingdom of perceiving his value in his heart, of responding to it to live and bring life into new places, to cultivate and multiply, which may mean tearing down structures, tearing down trellises that the vine grows and adapts and more fruitfulness comes, which is hard work and is often painful because we gave so much to it. It was so good for so long. I'm intentionally being vague to allow you to enter in to where that might be a reality? Would we be humble enough to reflect on those ways and say that heart, that hard-hearted, comfortable, secure heart that fears the approval of others lives right here. Lord, forgive me, cultivate me, prune, trim this heart that I might bear fruitfulness and find my life in you. Following the ways of Jesus not just his spiritual practices, but his actual ways is costly and it's messy to welcome the poor, to be with the sick and the oppressed, to speak truth to power. These ways are costly and hard and they are his ways. If we resist them, we do so to the detriment of life and growth on the vine and ultimately fruitfulness and harvest. One more way to enter the story. Way number three, as faithful stewards... We read the story and we see these unfaithful stewards, these unfaithful workers, and anyone that rightly says, how dare they? We know what they are meant to do. They've been entrusted with a great thing. Cultivate, steward, work it, multiply, draw your life from it, receive and enjoy, and when the time comes, share and give to others because it's been given to you. That is life. And that represents all of life, and it represents what we've been entrusted in abundance, so much. Will we receive it in joy? God does not need it. He does not demand it. He gives it all. He invites us to bring in generosity and to share in generosity with those in need because more comes, because he always multiplies his good gifts. He desires to give. He loves to give. Will we live in this way, recognizing all that we have is from him and his generous heart? Those that live this way will hear from him one day, well done, good and faithful steward. We have the hope of his eternal blessings. We'll close with a very similar parallel image that John in John 15 that Jesus uses to describe him as the vine and our life in him, John 15. Jesus says, I am the true vine and my father is the vine grower, the vintner. He removes every branch in me that bears no fruit, every, but every branch that bears fruit, he prunes to make it bear more fruit. So abide in me as I abide in you. Just as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Those who abide in me and I in them bear much fruit, because apart from me, you can do nothing. Will we draw our life from him today?
as every day would we receive from him the pruning or the trimming that needs to come to our own heart, in our own life? What can we join him in in that? Through confession, through repentance, turning from and turning toward, drawing near to him again. Let's pray for fruitfulness together. Let's pray for harvest in our immediate context, in our families, in our neighborhoods, in our communities that are so desperate for more of the fruit of the Spirit. We need that, but certainly our communities do. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. How desperate are we for these? Grow these in us, God. Grow them in our community as we draw our life from you, as we abide in you. Thank you for the abundance you've given. We're in this room. We have abundance. It's a spectrum, but we have abundance. How can we steward more? Multiply more, Lord. God is a father who loves to give good gifts to his children. That is his delight. When he restricts, there's a purpose behind it. There's a reason for dependence. There's a reason that he invites us to call out, cry out to him for more. That is his heart. Jesus said, I've come to give you life and life abundantly, life to the full. Not just the material things. Now, that goes far beyond. But it's right to pray for more. God, bring your abundance. Bring your life. Help me have open hands that both receive and give. That's the posture he wants. May we see a harvest and pray and long for a harvest, as was Jesus' heart, for new life in him. New life in him. For those that would know him and the hope of his kingdom, the reality of walking in peace, in justice, in mercy, in joy, in faithfulness and in hope, in freedom. May it be. May it be, Lord.